All right, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, uh, put your thumb in Acts 26. That's where we're going to live today, but I want you to actually open to Acts chapter 9. Put your thumb in Acts 26. That's what we're going to study and live in. But we're going to start in Acts chapter 9. Acts 26 and Acts chapter 9. I want to do something we hadn't done in a while. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Can we do that? Acts chapter 9. Verse 10. This is Paul on the Damascus Road on his way to persecute Christians there. And he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what happens. After he's, he encounters him, he says, Luke says that now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Saul's name was changed to Paul later. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is, my chosen, he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we ask, plead for your help as we study your holy word. Your word is eternal. It bears fruit and increases wherever it goes. It's alive and active like a two-edged sword that divides right down to bone and marrow. So we ask that that would happen today and that you would draw men and women unto yourself, that you would save lost people, you would bring the dead to life, that you would bring those in darkness into the light. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And let's say amen together. Amen. You may be seated. The reason I went to Acts 9 first is because when we dive into chapter 26, we're going to see Paul in another hearing, another trial, giving another defense before another authority figure yet again. And it's possible to come to Acts 26 and kind of have a bad attitude. Are you kidding me? Another trial? I, you know, last week we saw Paul appeal to Caesar in front of Festus, the governor, and you might almost hope that, okay, let's just get on with it. Let's get on to Rome. Right? Let's get before Nero and settle this issue with Paul. But here we are yet again, still in Caesarea, another trial before another governor, another king. And if your attitude is, uh, this is getting kind of boring, redundant, let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, this is sacred scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write these words. And so there is a holy purpose why it's in our Bibles. And the word of God does bear fruit and increase wherever it goes. And so we need to give attention. 
to the text. The other thing is, the reason I read Acts chapter 9 is I wanted to remind you yet again, remind all of us yet again, that the providence of God is leading Paul's life. These are not a series of random redundant events for Paul. God is sovereignly ruling over all of this because the prophecy over Paul's life from the get-go, you're going to speak to Gentiles, you're going to speak to Jews, and you're going to speak to kings. And we've seen Paul, after he comes into Jerusalem, he then gets an audience with a governor. Now, this week, he's actually going to get an audience with one who has the title of king. So let's talk about where we are in the story, okay? Last week, we studied chapter 25, and we saw Paul give another defense in front of another governor named Festus. You'll remember that Festus replaced Governor Felix. Felix was removed as governor, procurator over this Roman province that in included Jerusalem. He was removed, and Festus took his place. And as a parting gift from Felix to Festus, he left Paul in prison and said, all right, Festus, see what you can do with this guy, Paul. You want to be governor? Here you go, right? Because we've got an issue with Paul. Festus gives a valiant effort. He holds a hearing, brings the Jews in. Paul gives a defense, but he can't ascertain what's going on. The only thing, conclusion he can come to is that the issue between Paul and the Jews is a theological one, not a, not a legal one. Otherwise, it would have been better for Festus to just kill Paul. If he was just a Jew and he was having a theological fight with the Jewish religious authorities, just execute the guy. Get rid of him. Get rid of the problem because the last thing you need as governor is a riot in Jerusalem. But he couldn't do that because Paul's not just a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. And by law, Paul can neither be punished or executed unless he's convicted of violating Roman law. So here's Festus' idea. We saw this last week. He says, Paul, how about we do this? How about we go back up the hill to Jerusalem? We'll have another trial, another hearing. We'll bring in the Jews again, and I'll be there to oversee it. And Paul wants no part of that. He's done with hearings in Jerusalem. And so he appeals to Caesar, and Festus responds like this. To Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. But there's a problem. Here's the problem. Festus doesn't know what to tell Caesar. I mean, it doesn't take very much thinking to realize you don't just haphazardly send people to Nero in Rome. Like there better be a good reason. This better be a really big problem with this guy, Paul, for you to send him to Caesar. And so Festus doesn't know what to write in the documents that are going to accompany Paul to Rome. But it just so happens a king's in town, Agrippa II. He's come into town, as was customary in that day, to congratulate Festus. Way to go, Festus. You got a promotion. You're governor now. And he's come into town to congratulate him. And here's the interesting thing. Festus just happens to be somewhat of an expert in Jewish religion and authority. He's king under Roman authority of the Jews. That's, that's his title, okay? So he's in town, and Agrippa gets this great idea, or uh, Festus gets this great idea. Agrippa, why don't you help me determine what to write to Caesar about Paul? So he asks Festus 
to do that in fact, or asked Agrippa to do that. And Agrippa agrees. But he says, look, I want to hear from Paul myself. And then this is what happened. Chapter 25. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, we'll talk about her in a minute, came with great pomp. Dum, dum, da, dum, dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum, dum. That's the president's song, isn't it? I can't remember the graduation one. Anyway, y'all will hum it later. And they entered into the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Who's this guy, Agrippa the second? Well, if you're paying attention, you probably realize that if he's Agrippa the second, there was probably Agrippa the first. He's a junior, Agrippa Jr. And his dad, Agrippa the first, was ruthless, cruel. He was the one who arrested Peter and had James executed. Remember that? His father was Herod the Great. Now, Agrippa was the second was not considered to be as ruthless and cruel as his father and grandfather, but he's hanging out with this girl, Bernice or Bernice. Who is she? Guess who her dad is? Agrippa the first. That's right. She's Agrippa the second's sister. She married her uncle first. He died. And then she moved in with her brother in an incestuous relationship. We're not dealing with virtuous people here, are we? But Agrippa II loves the fact that Festus needs him. You need my advice? Great. Let's have a hearing. And so the next day, with his flags waving and his horses a-prancing and their swords gleaming and with I don't know how many military tribunes... And prominent businessmen, they march into the hall. And Luke uses the word, the Greek word that's translated in our Bibles, pomp. It's a word from which we get our English word, fantasy. This is fantastical. It's a fantasy because Agrippa's so full of himself. He's so full of his earthly authority. He thinks he's the stuff. He's all that in a bag of chips. Look at me. I'm going to come in and straighten this all out. But here's the irony. The real power at work is in this lowly prisoner, the Apostle Paul. And Agrippa and his fantasy is about to get a dose of reality. That's what I titled this message, a dose of of reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about to confront his pomp and circumstance. You with me? Let's see what happens. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. <clears throat> so Agrippa said to Paul, they get in the hall. Paul's in there. You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He stretches out his hand. He's not trying to quiet a crowd like he's done in the past. He's offering a salute to a wicked, 
pompous, fantastical king. Why? Paul tells us. He's thrilled. He's thrilled to be in front of Agrippa. Why? Because Agrippa knows what Paul is talking about. He's an expert in the Jewish religion and tradition and law. And so Paul's saying to himself, finally, I got somebody to listen to me that knows what I'm talking about. So he raises his hand in a salute and he gives honor to Agrippa. And he says, please listen to me patiently. Verse four. Verse four. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of my religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul says, Agrippa, I'm a conservative. He says, I lived according to the strictest party of the Jewish religion. The Pharisees, now we've talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees a lot in recent weeks. And the Pharisees, yes, Jesus called some of them hypocrites. And many of them were. But the Pharisaical movement started when the nation of Israel came out of exile. A lot of the Jews were becoming increasingly secularized. They, they were abandoning the hope of God. Hope in God, hope in God's promises. They were abandoning worship. They were abandoning the sacrifices in the temple and they were just adopted a don't care attitude about the law. That's why in the gospels, you ever seen this in the gospel? Tax collectors and sinners. We know who the tax collectors are, right? The sinners, that was the term they gave to people, Jews who'd become secularized. that just didn't care anymore, Right? That's who they were. And so the Pharisees, the Pharisaical movement launched in order to point people back to the roots of the Jews, back to worshiping God, back to the Holy Scriptures, back to the law, back to the hope in the promise that God made to the Jewish forefathers. You follow me? That's where the Pharisaical movement started. They were the gatekeepers of Jewish worship and tradition. At the heart of it, wheels came off. They got full of themselves, but that's where it all started. And Paul says, look, I'm one of them. I'm a conservative. I'm not a maverick. I'm not a liberal. I got one laugh over here. I haven't innovated on anything. The Pharisees were the conservative evangelicals of the Jewish culture. Paul says, Agrippa, that's me. I'm not trying to break the rules. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. I've got the same hope that the Jews have had since the beginning. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused, O king. Now watch this. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? When he said that, the room must have shook. Because here's what he said. I got the same hope that all my Jewish brothers and sisters have. Hope in the promise that God made to us that one day a Messiah would come. But when he said, why do you think it's strange 
that God would actually raise the dead. Here's what he's saying. What kind of God do you think we worship? Why would it be strange that God could take a man, and, and I know I'm going to fill in a lot of blanks here, but I know this had to be in Agrippa's mind and in a lot of his listeners there, that God could take the man, Jesus of Nazareth. They all know who that was. They know Rome killed him. They know who he claimed to be. They know that he did mighty and miraculous works among the Jews that nobody could refute. And they know that he prophesied that he would indeed rise from the dead. And Paul's essentially saying, Agrippa, and to all the Jews who accuse me, why would you think it's strange that God actually could do that? What kind of God do you think we worship? He would actually raise Jesus from the dead. That Jesus could actually be the Savior of the world. If Jesus walked through death and out the other side, can I tell you what? That changes everything. It's a dose of reality. Let me pause right there. We're living in a generation that's dominated by naturalism. It's the attitude, what you see is what you get. I, lots of advancements in science and technology, and I'm for all of that. I love it when we discover new things about the universe because it points me in the right direction. But there's something about our fallen nature that the more we discover, the more we learn, the more discoveries we make, the more successful we become when we make wise decisions, we come to this fantasy, I'm the captain of my own destiny. We come to a conclusion that I would argue is a delusion. I can make my life whatever I, whatever I want it to be. Really? Play that tape out. You think you're that special? You who had nothing to do with your existence? You who had nothing to do with when, where, and to whom you were born, with the color of your eyes and the intricacies of your DNA that caused such things to be? You? Really? You know, we, we have this sort of myopic view of life that it's, I, I don't know, but just the older I get, I know I'm only 40 and in some of your minds you feel like that's, you know, I, I'm barely out of diapers and to others of you, I'm, I'm an old man. I'm, I'm in middle age. That's what happens when you get middle age. But Mary and I were out at, at dinner last night and we were just talking about just how short life is. It's so brief, isn't it? And you don't get any do-overs. And we think we're driving the ship. We who have no control whatsoever of the cosmic infrastructures that hold this tiny planet together in this tiny little solar system in the vast and almost immeasurable universe, we are in charge. Really? 
A hundred years ago, none of us were here, were we? Anybody a hundred years old? None of us were here, but here we are. And we either morphed out of some kind of organic sludge or an infinite, eternal, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God who has no beginning and no end fashioned us and formed us and spoke us into being. And the Bible says that our being and the very universe itself is upheld by the word of his power. If he stopped speaking us, we wouldn't be here. Who am I? And who are you? To think that I can drive my own ship wherever I want to go. We need a dose of reality. Is Agrippa in charge? No. Is Festus? No. Is Paul? No. And he says as much. He's basically saying, look, what kind of God do you think we believe in? I'm not here because I'm a maverick. I'm not here because I'm trying to be a rebel. I'm not here because I've got an agenda or I think that I'm all that in a bag of chips. I'm here because a sovereign God is in control of my life. We sing it. I've been purchased by the blood. I've been bought. I don't own me anymore. Romans chapter 1, Paul opens his letter. We're going to study through Romans pretty soon. He opens his letter. I've been living in it already and reading it. You know how he opens his letter? The English translations say, Paul, a bond servant, and that's weak. Really? The translation should be, Paul, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew his life wasn't his own. And it started on that Damascus road. For all of our advances in knowledge, technology, we can be really, really stupid. Because just, just think about this. How dumb is it? I, and I say that tongue in cheek, so don't be offended by that. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit theatrical to try to make a point. But maybe here's a better way to say it. How ridiculous does it sound to think that it's a fantasy, that there's a God who's eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ruling the universe that he spoke into existence, who sent his son to die, rise from the dead, to save man from their sins, call us to righteousness, impute righteousness to us. How... Ridiculous does it sound to think that that's a fantasy and that what's real, what's really real and sure and true is what I feel, the whims that I have, what I think I, this little speck on a little planet in a great big universe 
that God breathed and spoke into existence and flung it into existence just to say, here's a little taste of what I'm like. In my opinion, it just doesn't make sense. And I'm coming to the age where I realized in my 20s, I couldn't see it. In my 30s, I really couldn't see it either. But I, in my 40s, I'm starting to really see almost for the first time, my life's not my own. And this life is not all there is. Thank God. I was in the shower this morning praying and I just felt the Lord overwhelm me with the, the wonderful truth. This is not all there is. And then if I'm faithful in a few things now, he'll put me in charge of many things then. That as brief as this life feels, eternity is going to be marvelous for those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. So Paul goes on. He talks about encountering Jesus on that Damascus road and the, and the great light that they saw that he and his traveling companions were just awestruck by. And then verse 14, skip to verse 14. He says, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, how intimate is that? Saul, Saul. Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have just knocked Paul off his horse if he was riding one. He said, Paul, get up, do what I tell you to do. But he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. I've appeared to you to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me <clears throat> and, to the, and, and to those in which I will appear to you delivering, from you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." This is the third time in the book of Acts we get an account of Paul's conversion. And this third time we get a couple of details that are new. One of them is that Jesus says to Paul, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, man. What he's talking about is in the culture of that day, there was an ox and there was a cart. Ox pulled the cart. And in between the ox and the cart, there was a plate. And the plate had spikes attached to it. And when the stubborn ox wouldn't move forward, they would prod it with a switch or something. And sometimes the stubborn ox, instead of just moving on, would get mad. And it would pick up its hind legs and kick backwards. And it would kick right into those spikes. And sometimes the oxen were so dumb, when they kicked into those spikes and hurt their feet, they'd just get mad and they'd kick again and again and again. And this is what Jesus is saying to Paul. Paul, this, you're like that ox. You're kicking against the spikes. 
Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is not asking that question because he doesn't know the answer. He's trying to help Paul see, if you try to resist me, you're just going to get bloody. You try to push back on who I've called you to be, who I've created you to be, it's just going to be a mess. Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Stop. Imagine Agrippa and Festus sitting there listening to all this. Are they listening? Paul says, here's who Jesus has called me to be. It's who he created me to be, to be a messenger, to call people out of darkness and into light. To stop kicking against the goads and come into the light. How many of you have seen those commercials, uh, direct TV commercials, where they make fun of people that choose cable over direct TV? Y'all seen those? What's your favorite one? I like the one where the guy's beating his head against the, the board or the lady that's pouring hot coffee on herself and laughing, right? Or the, the paper cut, right? Or, the, or the, the guy that sleeps in poison ivy, you know what I'm talking about? And they're, they're just basically poking fun at people that would make the, no offense to anybody who still has cable, make the incredible choice to choose cable over DirecTV. Why would anybody... Choose darkness over light. Right? Isn't that worse than pouring hot coffee on yourself? I had to think about that for a minute, but yes. And beating your head against the wall? Why would we stay in darkness? Why would we choose that? Did you know Jesus answered that question himself? In John chapter 3, verse 19. Look at this. You can look on the screen. John chapter 3, verse 19. He said, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and he said, who was a Pharisee, by the way. He said, and this is the judgment. Light is coming to the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you know why people stay in the darkness instead of coming into the light? Because they love it. You know what it says? So the question is, why would we love darkness? Jesus answers. Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. We don't want to come into the light because we're afraid of getting exposed. We're afraid, listen, we're afraid of a dose of reality. We're afraid that our fantasies and the the lives that we've built, that we think we can manage, are going to get exposed for their true fragility. We, we, we don't want the light to shine on the sin and the wickedness that we have traded or we have pursued or we have accepted as the cheap substitute for the glory, the love and the grace of God that is the only thing that will satisfy us. We don't want that exposed. So we love the darkness rather than the light. We choose fantasy. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I can make my life whatever I want it to be. 
I can make wise choices. I can build up my wealth. I can build up my health. I can build up my relationships. I can be prosperous. I can have position. I can have title. And do you realize how quickly all of that stuff we can do all the right things. One terrorist attack, one mistake, one affair, one taste of an illegal drug, one click on an Internet somewhere. And that whole structure comes crumbling down, doesn't it? I don't have to convince anybody of that. We know that. But yet we want to live in these fantasy worlds like Agrippa coming in with our pomp. And not let the light of God shine on, shine on those fantasies, expose them for what they are, and call us into the light. And the light is God's grace, it is His mercy, and it is His sovereign rule over our lives. It is us saying, put it, let me put it simpler. It is us saying, Jesus. I'm not driving anymore. You're Lord, not me. You made me. You have a plan for me. And I'm fully surrendering to that plan because my plans, at best they amount to a fantasy and a delusion that might bring me some joy for a time. But if... This is what Paul's saying to Agrippa, to Festus. You resist that, you push back on that, you're just like those oxen. Kicking against the spikes. I'll never forget the day that it dawned on me that God was not going to leave me alone. So, and, and you laugh. You know why? Because you remember that day too, don't you? You remember that moment, that season of your life where it finally dawned on you, he's not going to leave me alone. And some of us fell to our knees in humble praise and worship and the others of us came kicking and screaming. But even when we come kicking and screaming, isn't it so sweet to discover the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ when he makes sinful, wicked people Righteous and holy before him gives us life. Are you listening, Agrippa? You listening, Festus? Paul goes on and he talks about how I didn't disobey the vision, Agrippa. I caved, I gave in, I let go. And then in verse 24, look what happens. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, when you see loud voice in the scripture, you ought to read it loud. I'm serious. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. He realizes Paul's an educated man, but he, Festus has come to the conclusion that Paul's great learning has gotten away from him. What is Festus doing? Rearing back and kicking. What about Agrippa? Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Felix. 
But I am Festus, sorry. It's hard to keep those two straight. I even practice not doing that. But I am speaking true and rational words. I love that. Oh, there's so much in this text. The fantasy of Agrippa and the sober truth coming out of Paul. You see that? I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You see Paul's appeal? He thinks that there's something resonating in Agrippa's soul. And I think there is too. Look, look at what Agrippa says. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Almost. Almost persuaded. But Agrippa picks up his leg and he kicks. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Almost, but not quite. Agrippa, Festus, chose the darkness and not the light. They weren't listening. Are we listening? What are we going to do with our sin? What are we going to do with that before a holy and righteous God? We're going to try to manage that like we try to manage our lives? Listen, I say this with all compassion and love, depending on the Holy Spirit for those things. The gospel does not prop up our fantasies. It exposes them. And it calls us out of that darkness into light. I find that there are a lot of professing Christians who claim to trust Jesus for salvation, but are still endeavoring to live their lives as the captain of their own ships, the captain of their own destinies. And can I tell you something? Jesus is not interested in simply being an historical figure that you admire. He's not interested in simply being a philosopher or a great teacher or a good man that you think did some good things and somebody that you have some knowledge that you affirm about. The demons in hell know who he is. Jesus will not play ball in the darkness. He only invites us into the light. And coming into the light means that we not only have some knowledge about him, that he might be a savior, he could be a savior, 
It means that we come to him as Lord and Master. I'm not my own anymore. I'm yours because you made me. You know what the Bible said? By him, through him, and for him, all things were made, us included. That's reality. That's the truth. That's the sober truth that Paul is saying. And the difference between darkness and light is acknowledging that. It's surrendering to Jesus. It's saying, I'm not my own anymore. Here's my life. You know what happens when we surrender in that way? The Bible says we're born again. We're saved. God gives us righteousness. It's literally, listen, when the Bible talks about he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? Think about, think about every sin in just a couple of seconds that you can remember you've committed. It's kind of icky, isn't it, right? It's literally like God the Father put that sin on the innocent, pure Jesus as though he did it. Oh, it's a punch in the gut, isn't it? That that's what happened is that my sin was put on him as though he did it. And God turned his back and Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? That he died as a pure sacrifice and he rose from the grave. And now God... You know what business he's in? He's not in the business of supplementing your life. He's in the business of calling you out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, into the kingdom of his beloved son, where you are made righteous according to him. Every sin is washed away and God gives you his spirit. You discover the life that is truly life. That's why our vision statement, our mission statement here at Resurrection Church is this. We see a church where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. I'm not in the lead anymore. I tried that and it stunk. I made a mess. I made a lot of wrong turns. It took about six months in a relationship with Mary, my wife, to realize that when we get in the car to go somewhere, I'm better to just let her tell me where to go. She's a human map. It's unbelievable. She can point to True North right now, can't you? Where is it? Point that way. See, you see that? She knows exactly where it is all the time. Doesn't matter where she is. And that's a lighthearted example to try to get us to see it's time to come out of the fantasy world. I'm the, I, can, I, can make this, I can make my life whatever I want it to be. That doesn't work if you believe in a God that designed you and called you. And the God that the Bible says has marked out the race. Did you hear that? That our steps of righteous men and women are... Say it. It's time to surrender. 
Some of you might experience new birth this morning. Salvation. Death to life. Darkness to light. Others, maybe you surrender to Jesus. Your salvation is not in question, but you've tried to take the wheel back from him. Tried to take the reins back from him. You're kicking against the goads again. My prayer is that we would listen. Listen to the word of the living God. Listen to the Holy Spirit who's present right now and is drawing us to Jesus, our Lord and our Master. Let's bow our heads. Oh God, I felt such a heavy burden today that I welcome with joy because I know how easy it is for us to just kick against the goads and to live in the fantasy world that that's going to get us somewhere. Would you call us out of darkness into light? Would you, Holy Spirit, right now, invade, overthrow the hearts of men and women who maybe have not come to the place yet where they realize you're just not going to leave them alone, but you're calling them to yourself to surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're in that place right now and your heart is overwhelmed with the gospel, with the presence of the Lord, and you you want to stop kicking against the goads, if you're asking the question, how do I do that? I'm going to answer the same way that Peter, the apostle, answered When the crowd cried out, what must we do to be saved? He simply said this, repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the promised spirit. That's all that needs to happen right now. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, I get out of the way and I let you accomplish that work because only you can do it. Only you can rebirth people. Only you can bring us out of darkness into light. I pray that he who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, would hear the word of the Lord this morning. just going to linger for just a moment.
Can we just say it together? Jesus, you are Lord. Come on, just say it to him. You don't have to whisper it if you don't want to. Jesus, you are Lord. I am yours. Take my life. Make it what you want it to be. I'm not going to kick. I'm going to stop kicking. Just going to surrender. All my hope is in you. All my trust. And Lord, I pray for those that may not exactly know what that's going to entail. And that's okay because you're a gracious Savior. You will lead. But Lord, I thank you for the folks that have come to the place of surrender this morning. And Lord, we give you thanks that it's at that place that your light shines on us. I thank you that I'm forgiven. Come on, let's just, let's just walk through some gratitude right now. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. No, one, no man can hold anything against me. I'm justified by faith. I'm blameless before you. I've been set apart for you. I'm yours. I'm not an orphan anymore. <laughs> I'm a child of God. I'm a son. I'm an heir. I'm in the kingdom. Oh, what joy. The kingdom that will last forever. It will not fade away. Oh, Lord, I'm yours. And I thank you that perhaps today you have brought others from death to life. Thank you for doing that. To you be the glory and the honor. Thank you for reminding us who you are and who we're not. <laughs> but yet at the same time, calling us your own, your treasured possession. Who are we? Who is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? But yet... We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. Blessed be the name of our Lord. Would you just stand to your feet and bless him? Let's just bless him. Oh, thank you, Lord. Blessed be your name. Thank you for letting us experience you today. The glory of your presence. Blessed be your holy, holy name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.